So I'm Roger Kneebone, Professor of Surgical Education and Engagement Science at Imperial College London, and I've called this fourth lecture Staying in Touch with Patients, and I'm going to explore over the next hour or so the, the, the changing nature of touch in clinical performance. I lead the Centre for Engagement and Simulation Science at Imperial College London, and I also jointly lead the Centre for Performance Science between Imperial College and the Royal College of Music. My co-director is Aaron Williamon, who's in the audience, um, and he's based at the, uh, at the Royal College of Music. And since earlier this year, I've also become the Professor of Anatomy at the Royal Academy of Arts, which many of you will know uh, just off Piccadilly, on Piccadilly. Um, and this is a, a, a role... Um, that was, that was begun in 1769, the, the year just after the Academy was founded. And the first anatomy professor was William Hunter, the famous anatomist and leading obstetrician of his time. William Hunter, not only a distinguished uh, a scientist and anatomist, but responsible for some very famous and very beautiful illustrations of, uh, in this case, called the, um, the, the human gravid uterus with his colleague, the engraver, von Rimsdijk. And I put this up here because obstetrics is something that can only really be captured by more than diagrams, more than pictures, however beautiful those pictures are, because obstetrics is very much an art that involves the sense of touch. Because in order to deliver babies, you have to be able to carry out internal examinations and external examinations to work out which way a baby is facing, whether it will come without, without difficulties or whether you need to, to, to do things to turn it round. And all of this is mediated through the sense of touch. So if we look at, um, at the operating theatre, my first career was as a, as a trauma surgeon, and this was the kind of environment I was particularly familiar with. If we look at the operating theatre, we, we often see it, I think, as a site of the application of scientific knowledge and specific skills to make a, an individual sick person better. Uh, and of course it is that. Um, but we often lose sight of the fact that that is mediated very, very largely by touch. And if you look at closer quarters at what's happening in an operating theatre, you see a, a very beautiful choreography of hands of people who are, are working very closely together and they are using their sense of touch to make sense of the instruments, the organs, the tissues that they're dealing with. And so that says to me that, that, that what you look for in a clinical setting um, depends very much on, on how you look. So this, this well-known image of a, 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 a duck looking to the left or perhaps a rabbit looking to the right allows you to see two different things according to what you, you choose to focus on. And you can switch between those two views. Um, you, you can't see an amalgam of the two. You have to see one or the other, but you can move between them. And so I think it's interesting to think about other ways of thinking about the sense of touch in clinical practice. And one that, that I find very moving is Barbara Hepworth's vision um, one of her hospital paintings, which she painted in the 1940s when one of her triplets was very ill with, with, a, with osteomyelitis, a bone infection. And Hepworth spent a lot of time watching surgery. And I think in this picture here, the first thing that struck me when I saw it was that it's, that it's very clearly an operating theatre, although many of the things you normally expect to see in a picture of an operating theatre are not there. There's no operating lamp to be seen, there's no anaesthetic machine, no patient. Uh, and you can't see what the operation is really. But what you can see is people focusing on something that uh, is beyond themselves. You see people working as a group. And when you look at their eyes, you see that sense of focus and calm and commitment. But, but right at the centre of this picture are the surgeon's hands. They're exaggerated. Hepworth is drawing our attention to those hands. There are other hands as well, and they too are exaggerated. But I think, to me, this is showing what, what struck her when she was watching this opera, these operations, which was that sense of touch, that sense of care expressed through touch. So, so over the course of, the, of this series of four lectures, I've been, I've been exploring what might come into view when we see medicine and surgery not only as science, not only as component skills, but also as performance, because um, I think it is all of those things. But as, as patients particularly, 
Um, it's the performance that strikes us most vividly. And much of that performance is mediated through touch. Now, in the first of these four lectures, I explored the idea of expertise and what it was to become expert. Uh, I mapped out, I began by mapping out a, a trajectory which has been familiar to people for, for many centuries, the sort of old-style medieval guild system. When you start off as an apprentice, you're working in somebody else's workshop. You don't really know what to do, but you just have to have to follow instructions and do what you're told. Then after a number of years, you become independent, you become a journeyman, you leave your your master's studio, you go out into the world, you take your skills uh, on a journey with you, and then later on in your career, you yourself very likely become a master and you pass on what you've learnt. And I, I, I sort of reframed that for a journey of expertise in, in the current day world um, and pointed out a, a number of steps where, again, starting off by doing time, by spending time in somebody else's workshop, if you like, or their operating theatre, their laboratory, their studio, um, learning, learning to notice, learning then to, to work with materials. And then I think at some point around about here, there comes a, a, a sort of transition where you move from thinking that all these skills you're learning are, are about what you yourself are internalising and recognising that they aren't about you, they're about the person or the people that you're learning those skills for. And then eventually you... You, you have the confidence to develop your own style, your own individuality, and to apply that. And then later on, of course, you pass that on when you get to that mastery stage of having people learning from you. So I'm going to focus in this fourth lecture on materiality and touch, and particularly the sense of touch, because I think the sense of touch is both crucial but under under-acknowledged and under-recognised, and in a way it is hiding in plain sight all around us, but we often don't see it, and we lose sight perhaps particularly of the fact that, the, that one of the most extraordinary things about the hand is that it can both feel and do at the same time. But touch is a curious sense because it's kind of everywhere and nowhere. It has no single sense organ. So no localised organ, no, no touch equivalent of the eye or the ear or even the nose where that sense is located. It's, it's not just our hands, it's our whole bodies. And of course there's no equivalent of sudden catastrophic deafness or blindness or loss of smell. Or is there? So this is Ian Waterman. Ian Waterman's now in his 60s, but when he was 19, as an apprentice butcher... He developed a gastric upset for several days. He was pretty ill. Um, and when he, when, he, when he started to feel better, he realised that he had completely lost all sensation from his neck down. His muscular power was unaffected and he could still feel pain and he could feel temperature, but he, couldn't, he had no sensation at all and no sense of where his joints were in, in his limbs in space, no proprioceptive sense and this turned out to be an absolutely devastating disability, which he's lived with ever since. At that time, it didn't even have a name. It was so unusual. But other cases have been described since, and it's now known as an acute sensory neuronopathy syndrome. And I, I spent time recently talking to um, Professor Coles, who was the neuroscientist, uh, sorry, the, the neurologist, who for decades has been, been studying in. And it, it's, it's a very interesting um, it's a very interesting condition that he developed because it knocked out selectively his sense of touch, his ability to feel. So uh, when this happened, he, he was completely unable to walk because he had no sense of where his feet were. He couldn't feel them touch the ground. He had to learn again to put one foot after the other and it took him 14 months before he could even take a few step, steps unassisted. So... So there are ways of sort of teasing out that world of touch, but they're very unusual. Um, and I'm going, to, I'm going to distinguish between several different kinds of touch. I'm going to draw on the work of Max von Mannen, a phenomenologist who, who wrote in, in, a, in a book, many, many books, but this one in 2014. He distinguished between Gnostic touch, which is the touch that clinicians use to, to make, a, make sense of what's going wrong, to, to make a diagnosis, if you like, and pathic touch, the capacity of touch to convey 
emotion, to communicate. And I'm going to start off by talking about Gnostic touch. And I'm going to take you back to um, when I was a medical student in the 1970s at a fairly traditional school. And we were taught to carry out physical examinations. And we, were, we had it drilled into us. The, the, the clinicians in the audience, I'm sure, will um, sympathise with this. We were dinned into us was a sequence of steps that you did when you examined a patient, when you did a physical examination on a patient. First of all was inspection. You looked. You didn't touch. You looked. And the idea was to get a, a sense, an overall sense of the patient. Then came palpation, and that's touch. That's when you put your hand on the patient's tummy or their chest. Then percussion, uh, tapping the chest or the tummy or whatever to get a, an, aud- an audible sense of, of what were the consistencies of the organs underneath. And then finally, auscultation, listening with your stethoscope. So you had to go through these, these, these steps in sequence. And then after doing that, after, after those steps, you'd be asked to, to, to summarise what was going on. So you might have to put that together and say, for instance, this, was a, this is a 68-year-old retired school teacher with a three-month history of discomfort on walking. And he has an irregular, non-tender mass in the anterior thigh. It's five centimetres in diameter. It's fixed to the underlying muscle, but not to the overlying skin. You might give a summary like that, which is a descriptive putting into words what you had seen and felt. And then, only then, would you give a a differential diagnosis. You'd say, I think think it could be, this could be an abscess, it could be a tumour, it could be a collection of fluid, it could be whatever it might happen to be, and I think it is probably this, and in order to find out more, I would do these tests and treat it in such and such a way. So the the condensing and crystallising the information from that physical examination was a crucial part of learning to make sense of what are called physical signs, physical abnormalities, and put them into a, into, a, into a picture, into a narrative. So I thought I'd just explore a bit with you how I came to that stage of being able to, to, to do those physical examinations, because when I first went to medical school, I'd, I'd studied um, biology at school, and the, the inside of the body in biology lessons at school is reassuringly simple and straightforward. Um, and... I'd learnt from pictures like this. A picture like this shows um, uh, a simplified view. There are organs. All of the organs you need to know about have names, labels, um, and there's a place for everything, everything in its place. Uh, and the job here is to, is to learn what's on the diagram. When I started at medical school, it was reassuringly familiar. There were more labels. You can't read them. You don't have to read them. Um, But it gives a sense also that there is stuff there that just has to be memorised. And it's clearly laid out. The arteries are red. The nerves are yellow. The bones are grey. Everything has a a label. And the task is one of memorising visual information. But at that time, um, I spent two years uh, in in the dissecting room dissecting um, cadavers, so preserved bodies of people who'd given their bodies to science. And here's a photograph from an anatomical textbook of the kind of thing that you might see um, in the dissecting room. And in a, obviously there are similarities with, uh, with, that, with that diagram, but the reality is very different because not only is this a question of learning um, what it looks like, but also learning what it feels like learning what is the spatial arrangement and the relationships between these different things that until then I'd only learnt about in two dimensions on a diagram like this. And that's a very different story because there you are having to get a sense of consistencies and how things fit together. Although in the case of a preserved cadaver like this, it is nothing really like what you find in real life because the tissues are preserved and and, and stiff. And then later... As I became a clinical student and then a, a, a doctor, I started to enter the territory that I mentioned at the beginning, where I was, where I was having to make sense uh, with my hands and my fingers very often of, of tactile landscapes that I couldn't see at all, uh, doing internal examinations on, on women in labour, for example, um, other examples too. Very much based on touch. But now, of course... Things are very different. And over the, the next two or three decades, we have had revolution after revolution in how we think about the internal structures of the body. We've got 
CT scans, we've got MRI scans, we've got imaging of various kinds, ultrasound scans, all that kind of thing. And so whereas before, as a medical student, I would examine somebody's knee from the outside and I would make those observations. Here we have a very different picture. We're looking at a sideways-on view of the knee. So that's the bottom of the, uh, of the femur, the thigh bone. That's the top of the leg bone, the tibia. That's the knee joint. Over here is the kneecap. It, sort of sitting in, in a tendon, that skin over there, and on the right of the picture, as, as you look at it, muscle. So extraordinary levels of detailed information that you can get. And the same thing goes for looking at an abdominal view. So here we are with the abdomen. We've got the kidneys there, one on that side, another one there. We've got the liver there. And then above the diaphragm, these black shapes, that's, the, uh, that's one lung, that's the other lung. And you can see all kinds of details um, that would be impossible to get information from the outside, as it were. And I think one of the... Of, of course, these are extraordinary advances, but one of the unintended and sometimes unacknowledged consequences of that is that imaging can sideline the importance of Gnostic touch because so much can be done at one remove by technology that it is tempting to think that touch is no longer necessary. And I'm going to argue that the opposite is the case. Before I talk about pathic touch, Van Manen's second type, I'm going to talk about a different kind of touch that affected me particularly as a, as a surgeon. So when I moved from learning anatomy in the dissecting room and, and working on the wards as a student to become a, a, a surgeon in training and then a consultant, I was working in a very different environment. I was working at that time um, with the kind of operation that was almost always open, as it's called. The patient would be under general anaesthetic, open the patient up, see directly what was going on inside. And so if we pick up that image I showed you earlier, here is a group of people, a surgical team, and they're starting to make sense of uh, what is going on with a patient who's been stabbed. Um, I'm, I'm going to show you a little bit of surgery for those of you who, who do or don't like that kind of thing, but here goes. Fair bit of blood in here, actually, so let's pack the four quadrants. Okay, oh dear, quite a lot of blood swelling up here. Don't worry, that's the retractor, so we'll get that back inside so we can see what we're doing. So we'll reattach the suction, right? Underneath so we'll there. The there. Okay, can I have suction on, please? Okay, okay, all right, and let's pack again, please. So we see the surgeon's hands there, but we can't see what they're doing. And then if we, if we follow that up a bit, we see the surgeons using their hands directly in, in contact with living human tissue, in this case with intestines. And there are blood vessels there. Sometimes we see them um, bleeding. We see that the surgeons have to, have to control all kinds of, 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 of parts of the body that I had learnt about in theory, but now putting it into practice. And a lot of this requires a sort of tactile sensibility, a language of touch that is very hard to put into words. So now we're going to join, uh, just for a few seconds, uh, a, a, an operative team. Over on the left here is a very senior surgeon, Mr Black, who used to be the president of the Royal College of Surgeons of England. And opposite him is a, a, an inexperienced surgeon who is learning how to do the operation of, a, of gallbladder removal through open surgery. Very seldom done now because it's normally done through keyhole surgery, but he's learning it. And I'd like you to listen to the, um, to the dialogue. What are they called? Mokindos. Mokindos, yeah. So that's the cystic. And once you get the gallbladder developed coming away from the liver bed... Oh, yeah, there you go. We'll make the safer plane then. Uh, and there's this reassuring thing where you put a finger in. Try, just try that. Just ease a finger in there and feel the thought about it separating. Yeah. yeah. So the surgeon says at this point, there's this reassuring thing where you, you just put a finger in there and feel the... Um, uh, and I think it's that... Um, uh, that is the crucial part because he's reached he's reached a barrier he's reached the point where words will no longer convey what he wants to mean what he wants to say because he he's trying to convey a feeling and the surgeon whom he's teaching can feel that feeling by putting his finger in there and feeling the um, uh, but it doesn't allow um, a description in words so that's why you never see this kind of thing in textbooks or journal articles you hardly ever hear about it in conversation because it is something that you have to feel for yourself it is part of the language of touch 
And understanding that language requires practice and fluency and an ability to focus on what is going on with your fingers. And this language of touch, I think it's, it's something that we've been learning ever since we were born from early infancy onwards. It comes into sharp focus with this kind of thing, but it actually lasts a very long time. And I'm going to introduce you now to, um, to Mrs. Florence Thomas. When I met her, she was in her late 90s. And I wanted to speak to her because she had been um, a theatre sister in uh, a big London teaching hospital during the Blitz in the late 30s and then the early 40s. Uh, and I wanted to, to talk to her about her experience at that time. And in about 1941, she had fallen in love with a serviceman and they wanted to get married. And at that time, in 1941, you had a choice. If you were a nurse, you could, you could get married or you could be a nurse, but you couldn't do both. She wanted to get married. She did get married. She stopped being a nurse. And for the next 70 years, she had absolutely nothing to do with the health service or anything to do with medicine. And so when I met her 70 years later, I wanted to find out from her what it was like. So I asked her, but at the age of, of 97, uh, in, a, in a nursing home, it didn't surprise me particularly that she found it difficult to remember anything much at all about those days. We sort of um, uh, kept things working in the theatre. And then... Um, I don't really, uh, I re don't really remember the happenings uh, that were going on, and uh, we we just kept things moving. I happen to have in my briefcase, I had a, a pair of archery forceps. This pair of archery forceps looks like scissors, but rather longer, that you clip things with. And so I thought, I, I just thought, well, why don't I give that to her and see what happens? You would have been dealing with instruments, wouldn't you? There is a pair of instruments. Does that, do you recognise that? I don't really remember them all that well. But it looks as if you've held an instrument like that before. Yes. Are those like the instruments you would hand to surgeons? Yes, you used to hand me. These were artery forceps. Yes. Uh, so far as I remember. Absolutely. So how would you hand that to a surgeon if he needed it? That way. So that, that movement, that, that handing... A, a, an instrument with a slap into a surgeon's hand, absolutely characteristic of an experienced theatre system. And so here, by, by holding this instrument, first of all, she remembers its name, Artery Forceps, and then she remembers, she, you can see her moving it around and then, and then showing me how she used it. And so there is a kind of tactile memory, I think, that runs very deep, because even though it was 70 years since she'd ever held one of those instruments, it still came back open surgery. But of course, a lot of surgery nowadays is not open. It's keyhole surgery, which came in after I finished my own surgical training. Um, and the, the world of keyhole surgery is very different because, as many of you will know, uh, you're not making a, a, an incision and looking directly at internal organs. You're putting small cameras and rigid instruments through tiny incisions, in this case, in the abdominal wall, and seeing what happens on a screen. And the balance then between vision and touch is quite different. With open surgery, you can see um, quite a bit, uh, but there's an awful lot of stuff that you can't see, but you can feel. If you put your hand down into somebody's uh, pelvis, for instance, you can feel all sorts of things and make a judgment about what's going on there, even though you can't see it. With keyhole surgery, the balance is reversed. The amount that you can see and the, 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 uh, the, the sort of visual information is much greater, but the sense of touch is much reduced. So you might see something that looks like this. Um, you might have a, a sense of, of uh, you've got a magnified view of what is going on in the abdominal cavity here. Um, you probably don't know this, and I wouldn't have done it either if I hadn't uh, had someone tell me, but this is just underneath the diaphragm at the top of the stomach. Um, but it's, it's quite difficult to, to know what is just sort of packing material and what are important structures, uh, particularly since you can't feel them really. You've got a, a bit of a, a sense of touch, but it's blunted. It's, it's sort of masked by the fact that these rigid instruments are, are, are in the way. And now, of course, more and more <coughs> excuse me, procedures are being done 
through interventional procedures at one remove from, from where the problem is. So here's a clinical team putting in a tiny flexible wire into an artery in somebody's groin um, and then feeding that artery down through x-ray control and up at the top left of the picture there, top, yeah, top right, we can see uh, an x-ray image of a wire coming down through an artery through various anatomical structures that we can only dimly see if at all. <clears throat> so the whole thing is taking place in a kind of shadow world where there is still the need for, for sensitive touch, of course, but it's a different kind of touch. And then more recently, um, the advent of robot-assisted surgery. This is the da Vinci robot, um, which for many years was the, the sort of standard um, surgical robot. We've got a, a console over there on the left. We've got a, a complicated arrangement of arms that lock onto instruments that go into the patient. Um, and so robot-assisted robot surgery looks something like this with a surgeon in a different place, maybe a different part of the same room, maybe a different room or even a different country from the patient. And it's interesting, I think, to think how quickly technology has moved on. In September 2000, I was <clears throat> in the operating theatre when Professor, now Lord Aradazi, carried out the first UK robot-assisted removal of the gallbladder at St Mary's Hospital in 2000. Last year, that robot, that da Vinci robot, which for many years had been the only one in the UK, and, and then after that, one of only very few, entered the Science Museum as one of its exhibits. <laughs> so in less than 20 years, it went from being the very latest thing you could possibly imagine to being an accession at the Science Museum. And what I'm going to show you now is just a brief clip of an event um, I took part in, or led, with with Lord Darcy a couple of years ago, last year, at the Science Museum, where we were showing what it was like to use that first robot, and Professor Darcy took us through an enactment using that technology. So if we could go over to that uh, video, please. That we used in open surgery, a scissors, no different than the scissors you have at home. So we use these inside through a big incision, we cut whatever we have to cut. We substituted those with exactly the same instrument, but about a, a foot longer, but fine, so it goes in through a tiny hole. That is what we call keyhole surgery. Then came the robot instruments, and you're going to see these working. These start moving into all sorts of different directions, so they have exactly as what the human wrist movement is. We call those six degree freedom of movement, so you can actually simulate the whole human wrist well, with this one, there is no human wrist. It just rotates that way. It doesn't have any tip at the end that turns around. So first of all, you switch on the robot. And the two instruments, I hold them. I don't know if you're gonna see them on the camera. They're like two tweezers, yeah? So I don't know if you're seeing the picture. So that's the liver. That's the gallbladder, which has bile. If you've had a rough night, we'll know what a bile is. The gallbladder drains through a tiny duct here, which we call the cystic duct, into the bile duct here. So during the operation, you need to be very careful. You don't damage any ducts in here, because that won't be good. Now, do you remember what I said to you about the six degree of freedom of movement? You can see how these instruments are moving. Isn't that beautiful? Now, you couldn't do this with keyhole surgery because the instruments were straight. You lift it up very gently, you lift it up there. And you see the gallbladder is attached to the liver. So the first thing is to disconnect this very important structure very carefully and then start to remove the gallbladder from it. So I'm just gently going to tease this tissue, open it up, and then go behind it gently and just try and push this through. What I'm trying to do is to create a window so I could actually put the instrument Thank you. So just a glimpse of a public event with an audience of two or three hundred people watching Professor Darcy explain this surgical robot, which until very recently was, was the sort of dominant one. And the, the, the interesting thing about, about this is that whereas keyhole surgery reduced the sense of touch, the da Vinci robot obliterated it. 
So there was no sense of touch at all. There was even better vision than the keyhole surgery provides because true, monocular, true binocular vision. But there was no sense of touch. You couldn't tell how hard you were pressing something by feel. The, the new generation of surgical robots that are coming on now are bringing back the sense of touch. But I think it's interesting to think how technology is causing this Gnostic and procedural um, dimension of touch to change. But now I'm going to move on to look at von Manen's second category of pathic touch. So a couple of years ago, I used to ride around London on a, on a motor scooter, Vespa, um, and I was riding back uh, home a couple of years ago on a hot summer's evening with the visor of my helmet up when all of a sudden something hit me in the face and liquid started running down my cheek. I had no idea what it was. I was very frightened, as you can imagine, because my vision had gone blurred and I wondered whether it might be something corrosive. So I went straight to the eye hospital and when I got there, I was seen by two clinicians. The first one was an ophthalmologist in training, a relatively inexperienced doctor, who shone bright lights in my eyes and everted my upper lid and brought a slit lamp right up in, in front of me and, and peered into the back of my eye and put drops in and did all sorts of things um, and was clearly not confident. He was awkward. I was awkward. It was a profoundly unpleasant experience. Short time later, I saw the consultant. The consultant shone a bright light into my eyes, brought a slit lamp in, looked at the back of my eyes, everted my upper lid, did exactly the same things, but in a completely different way, in a way that made me feel completely comfortable and confident. Because as well as doing all those things that she needed to do to work out what was wrong with my eye, she was conveying care and reassurance. And she was doing that largely through touch. Luckily, although I did have an injury, it settled down in a, in a few weeks and all was well and it turned out that the fluid was just water. But nonetheless, I, it was a, a moment when I felt profoundly vulnerable because I was so anxious. And I, I noticed very vividly the difference then between the pathic touch that those two clinicians showed, and the, which was radically different, and the Gnostic information that they gained, which was um, possibly quite similar. So... Um, that relationship then between Gnostic and Pathic touch is an interesting one. And I'm going to, I'm going to quote now from von Manen himself from this book I mentioned. He says, of course, a Gnostic-Pathic ambiguity can arise in many professional and social situations. For example, the physiotherapist may manipulate or massage the patient's body with Gnostic intent, while the patient would say that the treatment has the quality of a pathic experience. Many medical procedures that are primarily technical may give the patient a pathic trust in the physician, especially if the quality of the relation between patient and doctor is personal. What then makes pathic practice distinct? The difference is this. Pathic thought turns itself immediately and directly to the person himself or herself. A pathic relation is always specific and unique. Even a relatively brief encounter between a patient and a healthcare provider can have this personal quality. A personal relation is something you can only have with a specific other. The pathic orientation meets this concrete person in the heart of his or her existence. Without trying to reduce the patient to a diagnostic picture, a certain kind of case, a preconceived category of patient, a psychological type, a set of factors on a scale, or a theoretical classification. In other words, there is something deeply personal or intersubjective to the pathic relation. That is also the reason that the pathic personal relation is easily confused with the private one. So I want to move now to talk a bit about personal space, because that experience I had with the eye doctors was very much about people coming with greater or lesser um, degrees of expertise into my personal space. I think personal space is a very interesting idea. The, the idea was, was first popularised by Edward Hall in the 1960s in a book that he called The Hidden Dimension, where he coined the term proxemics, looking at how people relate to one another in space. And, and this came um, from work by, by a pioneering zoo biologist called Heine Heidegger, who uh, worked at the Vienna Zoo and, and, and w from his observations recognised that, that animals function within small bubbles of territory that they take with them when they move. He called these 
He called animals owners of territorial property rather than captives, and that allowed him to design the space for the animals so that they felt comfortable, even though the space to an outside eye might seem quite small, provided it was the right size for them as they carried it around with them, it made them feel comfortable. And he, he um, began to observe what he called the interaction distances between members of the same species or different species, the distance at which they would either fight or, or, or run away. And he talked about critical distance, social distance and personal distance. And Edward Hall then extended that to humans and he started talking about personal and social distance and indeed public and intimate distance. And he pointed out that there is a kind of exclusion zone where you don't want other people to be. You might allow people you're very close to, people in the family to come into it, but you certainly don't want strangers there. And the extent of this zone varies with the context and it can be reconfigured. So, for instance, if somebody comes up to us in an empty street and bumps into us, that would be profoundly unsettling. But if we're travelling in rush hour on the Bakerloo line and we're jammed in like sardines, we accept much closer um, contact with people than we otherwise would. It's the same when you're at a restaurant. You have this strong sense that if a waiter comes and looms over you, it's very uncomfortable. Um, and so this, this, this idea of navigating personal space, I think, is, is very important clinically. And it now turns out that the, the, the neuroscientist Michael Graziano published a book this year talking about the neurophysiological basis for these ideas he's been um, establishing over many, many years, the, the, the existence of multisensory neurons that allow us to track the location of things around our bodies, even in the dark. And there's a sort of invisible second skin that, that allows us to, to recognise what are the limits of, of nearby space and also represent in different parts of the brain further away space. And it turns out that every part of the body has its own kind of bubble, its own radar system which allows us to recognise both other people and inanimate objects. But how to get into somebody's personal space without freaking them out is not as easy as it sounds. And, and I think entering somebody's personal space, which is what we have to do very often in, in clinical practice, is like going into somebody's house. You don't just sort of barge in through their front door without asking them. You, you, you knock, you wait for them to invite you, you take your coat off, you take perhaps your shoes off, you wait for them to invite you into their world and you have to recognise what are the characteristics of that world and respect them. In my first lecture, I, um, I introduced you to Fabrice Renguet, who is a very distinguished hairstylist, who for a long time was the training director at Tony and Guy. And, and he was talking to me about how it is that he gained the skills of being able to enter the personal space of a customer. He said that it took him a number of years to become comfortable with this. To be very close to the customer, he said, you need manners and education. That's why you start by approaching the head, not in an aggressive way. You need to be able to not touch the customer at first to keep a certain distance. As soon as the customer agrees with the consultation, interesting that he calls it a consultation too, um, about what we're going to do, you can start at first to put a hand on their shoulder and after probably touch their head. Instead of going, as I used to do in the past as a mistake, going straight away to the head, touching the hair, you need to have a kind of distance and go slowly, a bit like a bit like an animal instinct. You start slowly, you approach, you talk, and only after do you touch. You can't touch a person straight away. So, so that conversation with Fabrice made me realise that there is a lot that we can learn as clinicians that comes from outside the world of medicine altogether. So in the final part of this talk, I want to explore the ideas that there may be metaphors for clinical touch that come from outside medicine altogether that might, that might enable us to blur the technical aspects of medicine, the anatomy, the knowledge of disease, and look instead at how people touch other people uh, by looking outside medicine. And this occurred to me a while ago when I was, I was thinking about what happens when a, a surgeon, in this case a consultant surgeon, Mr Faze, is examining a patient's abdomen, the patient's been stabbed, and this is the palpation part of the inspection, palpation percussion and auscultation mantra that I talked about earlier, he is getting information from that patient by judging the rigidity of his abdomen. And at around about the same time, I visited the workshop of a, of a leading lute maker, Stephen Gottlieb now sadly died, um, and 
he's, he's showing me how he judges the level of finish of the, of the back of a lute. And I think when we look at those two things together, we are seeing two instances of the same thing, two instances of palpation, two instances of Gnostic touch. And people outside the world of medicine, I think, have a, have a knack of, of crystallising aspects of touch that we often don't think of in the clinical world. One of them that struck me particularly was a ceramicist, Duncan Houston, with whom I've been working quite a bit, who, who came up with this phrase that to me captures something really profound, the idea of thin materials on the verge of collapse. He uh, invited me to take my, my uh, students in a master's programme that I run to Central St Martins um, to, to, to have a go at doing um, pottery. And we watched Duncan throwing a pot on his wheel. We watched him um, thinning out the neck of this vase. And just at the point where it was about to collapse, he stopped. So that the neck of the vase was as thin as it could possibly be, but no more. And recognising that point where thin materials are on the verge of collapse seems to me to have far wider currency than just in the world of ceramics. We see it in textiles too. Vintage textiles. You can imagine that if you pulled this 19th century fabric a little bit too hard, instead of, instead of restoring it or improving it, you'd make it worse. It is, again, thin materials on the verge of collapse. And in the world of medicine, we are constantly working with thin materials on the verge of collapse, whether that's internal organs of people during surgery or whether in a more metaphorical sense it's the patients themselves that we're dealing with. So I'm going to take you to um, an event, just a couple of minutes of an event we carried out at the Art Workers Guild in London um, a couple of years ago. So we brought together a large number, almost 30, expert craftsmen of one sort or another. Wood engravers, glass engravers, plasterers, stone carvers, a whole range of expert people, many of whom are brothers of the Art Workers Guild. But also brought together a number of other people you wouldn't associate so much with an organisation like this. So there are five or six surgeons of different kinds colorectal surgeons, paediatric surgeons, others, and then some scientists, some, some laboratory bioscientists, analytical chemists, a wide range of, of, of people to explore the idea of craftsmanship as something that is as important and as much a part of, say, clinical practice and scientific practice as it is in areas that you more usually think of craftsmanship, a jeweler's workshop or a sculptor's studio. It's about the importance of that way of thinking that you can't easily put into words. We're really trying to connect for people the um, remarkable similarities between various surgical practices and all the different crafts. I make my incision there for an open appendix. But you've got a small hole that you're essentially putting your finger in. Yes, it's, it's not your finger, it's the brain attached. You've got to sort of tune in to what you're feeling and you really, your finger is a heat-seeking tool. It's to do with the, the thinking in our fingers, the intelligence in our hands. Oh, I think it's brilliant. Combining the thinking of mathematics and art, if you don't do it, you're in trouble. How can we make sure that these kind of conversations uh, can be replicated and magnified? Craft is being... Uh, it's being undervalued and it's being squeezed out of the secondary school curriculum in particular. And that's a real problem because it means I think that the next generation of people um, coming on will no longer have that same, that same way of thinking with their hands. All the essential things that you learn when you are making something, those skills, those ways of working and ways of thinking are an essential way to understand the material world. So, so here we have many, many examples of people using their sense of touch in different ways. Sense of touch to recognise the characteristics of the materials they're working with, sense of touch in doing things, sense of touch in all kinds of ways. And that thinking with your hands, I think, brings together those different elements of touch that I've been talking about. And so I'm going to finish by, by uh, showing you a piece of work that, um, that we've 
that, that, that one of the people you saw in that short video, Fleur Oaks, has been doing over the last few years called The Textile Body. Fleur Oaks um, is an embroiderer, and for the last two or three years, she's been the embroiderer, the lace maker in residence at the Vascular Surgery Unit at Imperial College London at St Mary's as part of the Centre for Performance Science, which I mentioned at the beginning, and she's our lace maker in residence there. And she's been watching hours and hours and hours of surgical operations. She's been watching people doing things with their hands. And she wanted to explain to her colleagues the kind of thing that she's been noticing. But most of her colleagues are nothing to do with medicine, and the idea of surgery makes them feel sick. So she wanted to come up with a way of explaining what was going on in the operating theatre, but not, not by using medical language or showing medical images. So she'd come up with this idea of a textile body which represents the practices of surgery and what she saw in surgery, which is not anatomy and disease and individual techniques so much as colour and consistency and shape. And so she'd come up with uh, what she calls the textile body, which consists of a series of layers. When you look at it, it's a, a box. It's about um, three feet by three feet, perhaps 18 inches deep. Um, and it consists of... Uh, of a, a, a canvas layer that represents the skin. And if you can see that if you unbutton any of these, you start to, um, to disclose layers underneath. The yellow knitted material is the fat. And you can see that there are structures that look like the kind of thing you might find in somebody's body, but without being too precise. So here there is no, you can't see where the head is or where the feet is. It's not that kind of representation. It's a representation of the of the materials that you find in the body and the layers that the natural structures fall into. So as you go through this textile body, you encounter things that are made of, of familiar materials. They're knitted or they're put together from, from lace or, or muslin or whatever it might be. But you have to work in a surgical way to make sense of them. You can't just go charging straight through them. You have to separate things gently. You have to recognise that some things are normal and others are abnormal. This one here, for instance, represents a blocked up artery. And when you touch it, the picture doesn't do justice to it, because when you touch it, you get that immediate Gnostic sense of there being something wrong. When you are trying to get down to the bottom of, a, of, of, the, of, of the box, which, which represents very accurately what you're doing, say, if you're operating on a tiny baby, you've got to get down to an abnormality in the windpipe or the food pipe or something, and you, you have to be very, very gentle in the way that you separate things, but you have to go to where the problem is. You can't bring it up to where you want to see it. You have to go down to where it is. And you have to navigate, particularly when you're in the early stages of your training, past things whose identity you may not be certain of, but you can tell pretty much that they're important and that you need to look after them. You need to care for them. You need to, um, to be gentle and delicate. And then eventually, when you get down to the bottom, you find a tiny little thing made out of uh, of, of silk like those fortune tellers perhaps you had at school that you made out of paper. You open that up, unfold it like the petals of a flower and there is uh, a tiny embroidered structure and the task then is to put another stitch in it at depth while working with other people. And a couple of months ago we took this to the, to the Welcome Collection with a group of, of 16 to 19 year olds, young people, to give them a sense of what it was to work with people they may never have met before, to do things in a group with sensitivity and delicacy and listening and observing to what they feel with their hands, combining Gnostic procedural and pathic touch, but from a direction that is completely non-medical. So to finish off then, I've outlined different registers of touch, the Gnostic, the procedural, the pathic, different, different vocabularies, different ways of thinking about touch. But things are changing and continuing to change. I think that pathic touch is at risk. Pathic touch is a very powerful way of communicating. A, a tiny touch on somebody's shoulder, a squeeze of the hand, um, the, the, the most fleeting of, of, of gestures, a tiny, tiny touch, can convey an enormous amount. And so can a deliberate withholding of touch. Um, touch can convey the kind of confidence that the consultant eye surgeon can 
conveyed to me or the kind of lack of confidence that that inexperienced ophthalmologist also conveyed to me without words, very, very quickly. And I think for a long, long time, people have developed a fluency in pathic touch by continual exposure to Gnostic touch. So spending years and years and years examining patients also provides a confidence and a fluency in conveying emotion through touch. And the more we outsource the Gnostic to images like this with all the advantages that they bring in terms of diagnostic precision and the ability to diagnose disease, we run the risk, if we are not careful, of losing that fluency in pathic touch because we're not practising it anymore. On top of that, there's the fact that many, many clinical consultations are now happening no longer face-to-face, -face, but remotely. So when I was a GP, which I was for almost 20 years, almost all consultations at the beginning were face-to-face. -face. As time went on, more and more of them were done by telephone, and now, of course, we have consultations over Skype, other forms of online technology. And, of course, those bring enormous advantages in terms of efficiency and the ability to bring in different approaches to diagnosis with artificial intelligence and all kinds of things. But the one thing that they do not allow is direct physical contact between one person and another. And, of course, the landscape of touch is changing in other, words, in other ways as well. The kinds of touch that, that used to be completely second nature to people, touch between adults and children, between people from different cultures and so on, these cultural landscapes are changing too. And so the context within which touch takes place and is enacted is also continually changing. So if we are to maintain our fluency in that language of touch, if we are to be able to, to use that ability of the, of the slightest touch to reassure and to convey not only compassion but care, sensitivity, expertise and skill, we need to ensure that we pay attention to this sense of touch because if we don't, it may leave us. And I'm going to leave the last word with, um, with two, two writers whose names I find hard to pronounce, um, but whose words are very telling. In physiotherapy, they're both physiotherapists, in physiotherapy they say, touch is far more than a cutaneous sensation. It opens the way for a trustful, respectful coexistence between therapist and patient. And in tandem with movement, enters, enters a dance-like progress in whose silent, leisured pace there are healing possibilities. And so I'm going to leave you finally with another glimpse of Barbara Hepworth's view of the operating theatre. Because to me, what she captures is that dance-like progress in whose silent, leisured pace there are healing possibilities. And at, that, at the centre of that are the surgeon's hands and the sense of touch. Thank you. Thank you.